Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Hey, everybody, I got a great one today, you know, for a change. And, and you know why? Because I finally got a guest who knows how to put two words together. Jesus, I've had some inarticulate people. Oh, I've had some extremely good-looking guests, but I keep forgetting that uh, this is not a visual medium. It's a podcast, for God's sakes. And I... I Finally just figured that out, and and that's a real breakthrough for uh, this podcast. So uh, from now on, only guess with something very interesting to say, or short of that, an interesting way of saying something that's just a little less uh, interesting. But today, very interesting, very interesting, because I have Chris Coons, uh, the junior senator from Delaware, junior senator Al, junior why don't you have the senior senator from Delaware? No. Believe me, you wouldn't want that. that that's Tom Carper. And look, I'm not going to say anything negative about one of my former colleagues. Why would I do that? Uh, let's just say you don't want to have to listen to Tom Carper for more than two minutes. Okay, but Chris Coons, that's an entirely, entirely different story. And not just because he's probably the U.S. senator closest to Joe Biden. See? Delaware? Get it? Wait a minute, you're thinking. I thought Joe Biden was from Scranton, Scranton, Pennsylvania. No, Biden was born in Scranton. His dad lost his job in Scranton, as the story goes, and said, Joey, I lost my job. But everything's going to be all right. It's going to be all right, Joey. Don't worry. I'm, I'm getting out of this hellhole in Scranton and getting a job in Wilmington. Where's Wilmington, Dad? I don't know. It's just supposed to be better than Scranton. Anyway, I think that's how the story goes. I, I just <laughs> I don't have it exactly clear because I haven't heard the story enough times. Okay, but that's not the point here. Chris Coons, very close to Joe Biden. And not only that, but one of the Senate's most knowledgeable leaders on foreign relations, extremely knowledgeable uh, guy on the Senate Foreign Relations uh, Committee, and uh, that's foreign relations, uh, not foreign affairs. Senators have relations, not affairs. And um, on top of COVID peaking and attendant economic and, and social problems attending that, uh, the president-elect has been thrown a, a number of curveballs already, uh, one in the Mideast before he even gets there, uh, before he gets sworn in. We uh, think uh, it's the Israelis who killed the top atomic scientist in Iran, and that is a big deal. This very well may have been a deliberate way to complicate Biden's hand in, in that region, and you're not supposed to uh, assassinate uh, people in another country like that. Uh, and, of course, that's our country's official policy. We make exceptions. We killed Soleimani, but he was a military guy, and he was killing Americans, and he was in, in Iraq. But it's very much our nation's uh, policy not to kill foreign heads of state in, in their own country. That's our policy, and it's a controversial policy. People will say, well, hey, if we had had the chance to kill Hitler— in 1939, you know, wouldn't we have done that? And that's a good point. I suppose the response to that is, yeah, well, the Germans could have replaced Hitler with someone a lot worse than him. No, I did not mean that. Uh, that's, I didn't mean that. <clears throat> uh, but you're going to be hearing a great one from Delaware Senator Chris Coons in, in a bit. First, I want to talk about... Uh, 
some of my other former colleagues, uh, the Republicans. Uh, you know, I keep in touch with a few of my uh, Republican former colleagues, and I've been texting a few of them, basically saying, come on, you got to say something. Trump is undermining our country's faith in our system of democracy. And these Republican uh, secretaries of state are getting death threats. Uh, and it's happening all over the country. And it's, you got to say something. And you would not believe the bullshit I am getting from my former Republican colleagues on, uh, when they text back. It'd be one thing if they had just write me back like, I can't say anything. Uh, my base is his base, and that'd just be the end of my career. And I'd write, yeah, well, you know, Americans have fought and died for our democracy, for our system. And I have written that uh, to them, and then I don't hear back from them. That's it. That's the end of that. <laughs> and But uh, that's fine. Uh, you know, I lost uh, a couple of uh, those guys during the impeachment. But uh, the damage that this is doing to our country is irreversible. The longer we have this pathetic display by this sick, sick, sick man, and I'm talking Trump, of course, the uh, longer this goes on, the, the more the Republican base believes that this has been rigged, that the democracy is rigged, because that is what he is saying every day. You know, in 2016, when the Russians were interfering in our election, they didn't think they were going to defeat Hillary Clinton. They, they didn't think she'd lose. They just assumed she was going to win, and they wanted to undermine her, and they wanted to undermine Americans' confidence in our system. Donald Trump has done that to an extent the Russians could only dream of. And these chicken-shit Republicans are doing the Russians' work for them. So before we get to Chris Coons, I want to talk about a couple other things. The uh, runoffs in Georgia, you know, the stakes are so high there. And I know a lot of you think, oh, well, we, we always lose these runoffs in Georgia. We always lose them. And yeah, we do. We always have lost them. But you know why? Because we have the general election in November, and then you have this runoff in early January, and... People don't know they're happening. Everyone knows they're happening in Georgia because they can't get away from it. There's been $300 million spent on ads in Georgia. And it, people are sick of the ads. So don't, don't send any money to anybody who's putting up ads. Send money to the ground game. Uh, I have a pack, Midwest Values Pack. Um, we gave, uh, during the, the general election, uh, a lot of money to uh, the Nevada culinary workers because they're the ground operation in Nevada and under Unite Here. And they've always been the most effective ground game. They were also in Arizona. They were also in Pennsylvania. They were in Philadelphia. They got more turnout in Philadelphia than we had gotten when Barack Obama ran. That's how effective they are. And they're on the ground. They're 400 from Unite Here, and they are on the ground in Georgia. And they're really effective. And, and by the way, they've been on the ground. They're on the ground in general. And during all this COVID, they did the ground operation. They were very careful. This is what they did. They do not share a car. If you're a canvasser for Unite Here, you don't share a car with another canvasser. You have your own hotel room. You don't share a hotel room. Not one of these canvassers around the country got COVID because they know what they're doing. And they're really effective. And... Possibly a lot of Republicans won't show up because their president is telling them it's all rigged. Isn't that wonderful? Wow, what a putz he is. Woo! What a putz. There, I've said it. 
<laughs> I know it's going to be controversial. Calling Donald Trump a putz. So here's how to help unite here in, in Georgia. Google Take Back 2020. The first result will be Unite Here, uh, their website. Go to that, and there you'll be able to donate to Take Back 2020. So don't, don't give money so that more ads. No one wants to see more ads there. And I know you might be thinking, we always lose these, but look, this is the last election in the cycle. <laughs> this is control of the Senate. And uh, you, you, we have to try. And I think we can, because this one's very different than any of the other uh, runoffs. And this is about judges. This is about confirmations of Biden's nominees, and it's about legislation. And it's about our having the majority and setting the agenda in the Senate and being able to pass legislation. This is unbelievably important. So uh, please, if you're of a mind to do that, please do that. And also, there's all kinds of stuff to do in this season. Uh, there are food banks. Uh, People are hurting. I talk a little bit later. I feel very emotional about this. We have not had a relief package for people because of COVID. We're, fi we're finally hearing them talk about doing something, and let's hope we do it. But this has been an unbelievably hard time for a lot of folks. I want to talk about a couple other things before we get to Chris Coons. Uh, Biden won, but we did not do well down ballot. And uh, there are a number of reasons for this, one of which is there is just a critical mass of Americans, uh, Republicans and independents who just went, we cannot have this guy around <laughs> for another four years. And I was frankly surprised there weren't more, uh, that, that Donald Trump got the second most votes of any presidential uh, candidate in our history. That, that was just scary. And... What this is about, and I've talked about it, I wrote an op-ed piece that maybe some of you are familiar with, about there's two universes of information in our country, and we have a lot of people in our country who believe that Democrats are blood-sucking pedophiles. I mean, th they get their information from a whole different universe. We talked about that, uh, Tim Kendall, on our, our last podcast. He was the former Facebook executive who actually was in charge of monetizing their system and came on advertising, and that's why their algorithms are designed just to keep people on, and the algorithms are smarter than we are, than any, <laughs> and it's just they're getting smarter, and they have found these pernicious ways to keep you on Facebook. And part of that with a lot of people is uh, appealing to their prejudices and telling them weirder and weirder, weirder stuff. And it's very, very, very dangerous. That's a big reason we have this divide. There's other things I want to talk about in, in this election. I mean, I follow Minnesota, obviously, very closely. And Biden won by seven points there. But we did not do well down ballot. And we lost seats in the state House of Representatives. And we had only been down two state senators. This is an interesting story. Um, I actually invested quite a lot with my PAC in that. We created a data operation for them, which, uh, believe me, they needed. We were down by two state Senate seats. That's all we needed to pick up two. We'd give the governor both houses and to get this crucial legislation through that we need in Minnesota. So we were two down. We needed to pick up two. We didn't. And here's why. In Minnesota, there are two marijuana parties that have lines on the state ballot. Because in Minnesota, if you have a statewide candidate in your party who gets 5% or more, that gives you a line on the ballot. So you have Republicans, Democrats, and you have the legalized marijuana party and the legalized cannabis party. You have two pro-legalized marijuana parties on the line in Minnesota. And because they siphoned off votes from DFLers, that's the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, in a couple of races, we did not get the majority. We did not pick up those two seats. We're still two down. And because of that, Minnesota 
will not pass in the next four years, these are four-year seats, will not pass a legalized marijuana bill because of the two marijuana parties. Now, if that doesn't tell you everything you need to know about marijuana, I don't know what does. Okay. <laughs> wow. Also, one last thing. Uh, there's so much to talk about, uh, but one last thing. President Obama incited a controversy by saying something I think is pretty obvious, that defund the police worked against us. And he's gotten some pushback from that, and he he's right. That is was not a good slogan. Uh, believe me, I know this. This worked very badly for us in uh, in in Minnesota, in a lot of areas, in a lot of areas. And uh, we don't want to defund the police. I don't think. I mean, to, to a lot of ears, that sounds like that slogan. It, I'm not sure if people meant it as a slogan, but. Uh, after George Floyd, the horrific, horrendous George Floyd murder, the city council in Minneapolis said they were going to defund the police. Now, I, that sounds like abolish the police. I don't think maybe there are some people who want to abolish the police, but defund the police. You know, I used to say that the difference between Republicans and Democrats is that our bumper stickers always end with continued on next bumper sticker. Well, we came up with a really bad bumper sticker, defund the police. And that was used against us nationally. And I I think President Obama was right in this case. Right after that happened, uh, we had Charles Ramsey, the former police chief for Washington, D.C. and for Philadelphia, uh, who had headed up President Obama's police reform commission, which was immediately disbanded by Donald Trump. There's a lot of ways to reform the police, a lot of great ways. And that's if you want to go back, Charles Ramsey, that's a good good one to listen to. If you're going to a domestic violence dispute at midnight, bring a social worker along. One, one cop, one social worker. But don't send a social worker alone. <laughs> don't, don't send a cop alone. <laughs> send a social worker and a cop. There's a whole bunch we can do. He talked about getting rid of the bad apples, but Chief Ramsey also talked about why do we have these apple trees that are producing all these bad apples. Um, anyway, let's talk to uh, Chris Coons. This is uh, uh, a really great one, you know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One of the things, of course, that I knew you from was uh, your foreign relations committee work. And I know that... Uh, 
you know, you're a very, very, very close advisor to the president-elects, and uh, there's stuff happening right now uh, in terms of uh, the assassination of this Iranian scientist. And today was the first uh, presidential daily brief that the president-elect got, right? Yes. And uh, those are usually tailored to the interests of the president a little bit. So I'm going to, believe it or not, they released a recording of today's presidential daily brief. People have started to go rogue there. So here, here it is. I'll, I'll, I'll play this for you. Uh, Mr. President-elect, uh, before we begin, I should warn you that the presidential daily brief has uh, changed uh, quite a bit since uh, President Obama and you were in the White House, sir, and uh, we'll have to wait until January 20th to uh, revise it to your uh, personal preferences. So uh, here we go. <clears throat> presidential daily brief, November 30th, 2020. President Donald Trump continues to be the most widely admired and feared leader in the world. He is the smartest, toughest, and most virile president in our nation's history and has won the admiration and respect of adversaries like Great Britain and Germany and friends like Turkey, Hungary, and uh, Russia alike. <laughs> and that's it, sir. So Biden is going to be... Uh, inheriting a very, very different uh, foreign relations uh, policy than, than he and Obama left. Absolutely. Um, one of the great challenges that uh, President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris face is that our relationships with our vital allies have been strained. Um, our standing in the world, our ability to mobilize the world to act, whether it's uh, in response to climate change or uh, in response to threats ranging from North Korea to Iran to Russia, um, has been weakened. And our trade relations with the world have been tested and um, reshaped in ways that I don't think actually serve our security interests or promote our values. So um, there's a very robust agenda of things um, that the Biden-Harris foreign policy national security team will have to do. And I look forward to supporting them in that important work. And of course, this is one area where the chief executive, where the president has some running room, right? As opposed to <laughs> a lot of other areas that he's going to have to deal with, especially if we don't win the runoffs in, in Georgia. Historically, the president's got uh, the most freedom to act uh, in foreign relations. And, you know, frankly, out of all the disruptive things that President Trump uh, did or has tried to do, um, the one where he was least successful was in slashing funding uh, for the State Department, for foreign assistance. Uh, obviously, he increased funding for the Defense Department. Um, and so while he did things that restructured or destabilized some of our relationships, the resources remain largely there um, for um, USAID and for the State Department with good leadership, with folks who actually believe in and support uh, our development professionals, our diplomats. Um, I, I think it's possible for us to revive and sort of restore the capabilities of uh, the State Department, USAID, MCC, a lot of other organizations critical to our place in the world. Frankly, we're going to need that because um, there's nothing more urgent um, about our work globally um, than rebuilding our alliances and helping the world respond to this pandemic. Yeah, I'll get to the pandemic in a second. You were on the Foreign Relations Committee, and you were ranking on Africa, and you just brought up USAID, and I remember when you led a CODEL that I was on, a congressional delegation trip uh, to Africa, that the first thing we saw was a USAID project in, in uh, Senegal, right? Yep. We, um, we flew overnight uh, from Andrews Air Force Base to Dakar, and then I unwisely, without giving us any time to recover, we all bundled into a small plane and went up to San Luis to the very, very north of Senegal. It was over 100 degrees, and we spent hours inspecting a, a water irrigation sanitation project, a large-scale uh, water infrastructure project. You were a trooper, but I, I do remember you at one point looking at me and saying, this is the longest day I've ever had. <laughs> so. You know, it's funny because I was not going to bring this up. <laughs> yeah, we flew all night. Also, these are not luxurious trips. I think I've slept on the floor, tried to sleep on the floor of the plane. 
land, and I'm thinking, okay, hotel, you know, rest up. New. No, not really. No, no. We go on some, what do we went on? Planes or helicopters, some way, way far away. And listen, you can, a human being can tour a water project while exhausted and sleepy. I learned that. (laughs) <laughs> that day and uh, cursed you maybe during the trip. And then we, it was a great trip though. And I thank you for that. It was very memorable for me and Franny. Uh, I remember when we, we went to Ethiopia, which is really, really far away from Senegal. It was another eight hour trip. It's sort of the other side of the continent. I, I was overly ambitious on our agenda for this one. Yes. Yeah. And I remember one day where I was assigned to go out to a village. I think it was an Oromo yep. village. Uh, where we had set up some clinic for women who were pregnant and and were doing some good stuff there, and I was to visit that. And you guys had some official state lunch. And we go out there, and it's this uh, rural village, and one one of the families there made a lunch, made an elaborate lunch for me and Franny, which we had been told, don't eat anything. Right. (laughs) And, of course... I am not going to, they went to a lot of work, this family, and of course, we're going to eat it. We're going to eat it. So we, uh, Franny and I have this, uh, this uh, lovely dinner. I do not like their bread. Their bread is like sponge. It's called injera, and it is, uh, it's an acquired taste, yes. It's spongy, but uh, <laughs> they were wonderful. These people were wonderful. We did not get sick. All of you got sick at the official event. Yes. In we got Odyssey. desperately ill. In fact, um, <laughs> it, it's, uh, Senator Merkley of Oregon ha- has reminded me of this several times. We were actually north of the city of Addis, uh, the capital. We were visiting with a group of farmers who had tripled their um, yield of corn by using a maize uh, hybrid. And they went through this very elaborate ceremony, the coffee ceremony, and sort of blessed. And then they presented us with these ears of corn. To your point, we had all been instructed severely not to eat anything that hadn't been cooked and boiled and washed and sterilized. And so I made the tragic mistake of biting into the corn. And Merkley says to me, he looked over at me and said, okay, well, if Coons is doing it, I guess I should. I lost 10 pounds. He lost 15 pounds. I don't think Jeff left his hotel room for a day. And we had to get on a plane and go on to Rwanda. Um, It was a a memorable weight loss opportunity, but it was also, you know, frankly, a great chance to see the impact that hybrid is having on both Ethiopians and Americans. And by the way, no one laughed harder than me and Franny sure. at your distress. Um, I, I actually thought you had gone to a formal uh, government lunch. Maybe you had done that as well, but I, I did not know about the danger you had knowingly exposed yourself to, but that still makes me laugh. Anyway, so uh, we have this, uh, let's get to more serious stuff. I- Israel, it appears, we don't know for sure, has assassinated uh, Iran's top nuclear scientist. They're not supposed to do that, are they? Or, or And did, do they, do they like consult with us? Wasn't there a meeting between Pompeo, Netanyahu, and M- MBS? Uh, Mohammed bin Salman just recently? Um, well, Al, uh, according to uh, press reports, um, there was a uh, clandestine meeting between Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, the crown prince, and uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. I don't have any insight into what the topics were, but given the recent normalization of relations with uh, the Emirates, uh, with Sudan, and with Bahrain, I would assume that the conversation between Netanyahu and MBS was about normalization with Saudi Arabia. And speaking of that, it's complicated now, isn't it? I mean, very complicated. This is a new chapter in the Middle East, and you know, a lot. There's a lot of talk, of course, about our getting back into. Uh, the Iran nuclear deal, and and that's good. Uh, you know, it's crazy that we got out of it, and et cetera. But it's complicated now, right? I mean, they have missiles that are very, very accurate. Uh, they attacked Saudi Arabia a couple of years ago, uh, took out a lot of its uh, oil infrastructure, and we didn't we didn't respond. And tell me a little bit about that that region now. 
Well, um, the 2015 Iran nuclear deal that's known by its acronym, the JCPOA, um, did accomplish some significant things. Um, Iran destroyed its plutonium reactor at Iraq. Um, they moved outside the country, the vast majority of their enriched uranium stockpile. They decommissioned um, a whole series of their more advanced centrifuges, and they allowed for searching inspections by the IAEA. And as you know, I, I ultimately supported it, although having expressed real concerns about their missile program, their support for proxies, and what might happen as a result of the deal. In the three years after it, Iran did not significantly change their behavior. In fact, if anything, they increased their aggressive actions uh, in Syria, in Yemen, uh, elsewhere in the region, in Iraq. And in 2018, President Trump pulled us out of the agreement. Our European partners, the E3 of uh, France, Germany, the UK, and the EU, are continuing to try and keep the deal alive, along with China and Russia, the other signatories. But Iran is now demonstrably well outside the deal in terms of how much they've enriched. They're upgrading their centrifuges. Uh, and there's been both this recent assassination of their leading nuclear scientist, and there was a mysterious uh, bombing or explosion or fire at Natanz, at the Natanz research, a nuclear research facility south of Tehran. There is widespread um, debate in Congress and in anticipation of the incoming administration about on what terms we should rejoin the deal and whether or not Iran can be expected to or hope to re-engage in diplomacy with us. Obviously, um, there's been significant changes in the world. Our relations with our uh, European partners have been strained. And, and I would think at the very least, Iran would need to come back into full compliance with the deal for um, the United States to pursue a diplomatic path. The whole reason for the Iran nuclear deal in the first place was to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon and to increase the so-called breakout period, the amount of time it would take if they made a decision to just abandon all restraint and race towards a nuclear weapon, how long would it take them at the point where the deal was being negotiated, it was estimated as less than three months, and the deal uh, pushed it back to a year or more. It's now back down to just a matter of a few months. And so uh, I think, you know, Al, if nothing else, we have to find a diplomatic path with our partners and allies to find an option for how we move forward to constrain Iran's um, support for terrorism, its ballistic missile program, and its nuclear ambitions. So those are tied together. And of course, the nuclear piece of that, the nuclear deal was not tied to the other stuff because uh, we just felt it was a uh, benefit to mankind for them not to have a nuclear weapon. And we were going to continue to have inspectors past the 10-year window of the deal, right? But in the meantime, as you say, they have increased their activity in the region certainly in Syria and uh, in Yemen and other, other just they've been a bad actor all over the place. And it's going to be really tricky on how we negotiate to get them back into the nuclear deal. And at the same time, I, I, I suppose that would mean that we would relax the sanctions we have against them. But there are a lot of people who argue that by relaxing those sanctions, it will give them the opportunity to do far more mischief. And it's not mischief, it is vile stuff. Well, and th those are uh, understandable and legitimate concerns. Um, we also have upcoming elections in early 2021 in Iran. And so one of the other questions we're wrestling with is to what extent does signaling uh, a willingness to re-engage with Iran either strengthen or weaken um, the hand of hardliners versus slightly less hardliners in Iran? Obviously, the assassination of their most senior nuclear scientist both demonstrates that there are players in the region, if the reports are true that it's Israel, uh, willing to take aggressive action to prevent um, Iran from a nuclear breakout. And it will probably encourage those within Iran who view diplomacy as uh, un unlikely to be successful. But, you know, I haven't had a classified briefing on recent developments in Iran. That's one of the things I'm looking to get uh, in the coming weeks. Okay, we're going to take a, a quick break from Chris Coons, Senator from uh, Delaware. A uh, close friend and ally of 
uh, President-elect Biden. We'll be right back. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. Let's move on to domestic politics and uh, to the Senate, because unless we win these two runoff seats in Georgia, the Republicans are going to continue to control the Senate. And this is this one speaks to the importance of my listeners <laughs> donating to Georgia to, or getting on the ground there. Uh, especially uh, Georgians who are listening. But this is going to be a monumentally difficult Senate and Congress to deal with if um, if we don't win those two, right? Absolutely, Al. Um, these two special elections, uh, which there's a variety of sort of unusual circumstances that came together for there to be two special elections for the U.S. Senate in the same state at the same time. Um, Senator Johnny Isaacson uh, who was my ranking member uh, on the African? And a lovely, Senate. lovely guy, I will say. Just a charming man. Yes. Um, you know, you know, Al. When when we as senators say to people, "My good friend Orrin Hatch," you know, I, I we think don't mean most, it. Most we don't mean it. Eyes, right? <laughs> but, in, but in this particular case, you know, unprompted, you said of Johnny, you know, what a lovely man. He actually, despite being a conservative Republican from Georgia. Uh, despite being someone I disagreed with on a lot of important policy areas, is personally uh, one of the kindest, most gracious people I've ever served with. And we managed to get a number of important bills signed into law under um, the Obama administration. He retired um, um, because of a, a challenge with Parkinson's. Yep. So there are two elections at the same time. One's a special election, one's a regular election. And in both cases, Neither candidate got 50%. So there is this runoff uh, January 5th. To your point, if we win both of them, then we're in control of the Senate. And that means a very different path forward in terms of uh, confirmations uh, for the Biden cabinet, uh, in terms of judgeships and uh, judicial nominations, and in terms of our ability to advance uh, an agenda, anything like uh, what Joe Biden ran on. If we lose one or both of those, uh, races and Purdue or Leffler, the currently serving Republican senators are reelected, then it really all falls to Mitch McConnell and whether or not he's going to be reasonable and agreeable. And recent history suggests um, we should not be optimistic on that front. It may prevent us from confirming a single judge in the coming two to four years. It may prevent us from delivering uh, COVID relief uh, to the tens of millions of American families that are facing eviction, who've lost their job, who are struggling economically or personally. Um, and it may prevent us from doing anything bold or significant on climate change, on opioid addiction, on background checks, on immigration. I will work, as you know, Al, tirelessly to try and find Republicans willing to work with me on this. But it is a lot harder when we're in the minority and when Mitch is the majority leader. My temptation here is to go into uh, senators and stocks and selling their <laughs> stocks. And I don't think that's as important as COVID relief, which I want to talk to you about. Uh, but my God, why, why, why should any senator own any individual stock? Why shouldn't 
we just have been required. What I did was I had mutual fund. I had like I had uh, uh, exchange based, you know, stocks like uh, index funds and stuff like that. We we had a stock act, right? You remember yeah. that? Yeah. And it, uh, thank God for that because that meant you had to disclose what you did, and that's part of the reason Purdue and Leffler are both in trouble on this. But this is unbelievably awful. It just just remarkable that senators apparently, I mean, by any way you look at it, these are inappropriate sales of stock using knowledge that you that they had. And I just don't understand. Will there be a move to say, nope, you just can't own individual stocks? Speaking sort of broadly about ownership restrictions, you know, Al, it would make, it would make a lot of sense to me that a requirement of service in the Senate is that whatever assets you come in owning, whether it's mutual funds or properties or stocks or whatever it might be, um, that you have to fully disclose and set up a blind trust where whoever is managing those assets does not and cannot consult with you about things you learn through your service in the Senate. I think it will be difficult to get the whole Senate to ever agree to barring any ownership of stock some folks, you know, come into the Senate having been successful in business. Some come into the Senate uh, with family businesses that they own some share of. Some come into the Senate largely penniless. Um, one of the ways uh, that I think Joe Biden distinguished himself uh, in the Senate was by often being the senator with the least economic resources and never forgetting where he came from and being someone who grew up um, in you know, middle-class neighborhoods of folks who worked in manufacturing. But I, you know, one of the challenges, as you know, is that any, any change in terms of our disclosure rules requires a majority of the Senate. And if there's one thing Mitch McConnell has fought tooth and nail, it's increasing limitations on political um, fundraising, limitations on disclosure by requiring greater disclosure. And, and I frankly think it undermines the credibility of the Senate as an institution as a whole. Many Americans own um, something through their IRA or their pension fund in mutual funds. Relatively few Americans own, you know, $100 million in stock, and, and a few of our colleagues do. And, and I think it, it just casts doubt on the Senate as a whole when you've got folks of, of great means and who continue to trade even during their service. Okay, let's, let's talk about the most urgent crisis facing us, which is covid and we now have some hope, which I, I, we needed. <laughs> so I want to talk about, one, the vaccines. And two, I want to talk about a COVID relief package. I think it is. it just makes me want to cry, knowing that food insecurity has tripled in this country, that we have uh, kids who can't go to school, who don't have uh, connectivity. We have parents who have to stay with their kids and can't go to work. This is sinful, the way we're handling this. Can we get a relief package? Can we get it soon? Can we help people? Al, that's um, part of what makes it so hard for me to go back to Washington today and to uh, try and stick out my hand and say, okay, Lindsay, okay, Susan Collins, okay, um, let's, let's try again and get this done. We should have done this six months ago. To be encouraging, I'll remind you um, that in March, the Senate unanimously passed the CARES Act, which at $2.3 trillion is the single biggest bill we've passed in decades, or frankly, likely will pass in decades. It was an absolutely enormous relief package um, that sent unemployment uh, checks, uh, support for small business, um, significant resources to states and local governments, um, and invested in the development of the vaccines that are now showing huge promise um, so that we can move from hope to optimism to confidence that we will be out of this pandemic next year. What is maddening, Al, um, and to use your term, sinful, is that month after month after month, um, the Republican majority in the Senate has refused to move on a package anything like the scale that is needed 
Um, there's about 6 million Americans who are facing eviction or foreclosure in the coming month. At the holidays, uh, in my little state of Delaware, the Delaware Food Bank is serving more people than they've ever served by um, a multiple. I was just over at one of our larger city um, public schools, a middle school where there was a testing available, and I was talking to the principal. Um, and he said, you know, they are doing their absolute best to provide uh, an educational experience, but the number of kids who don't have access to the internet, who don't have um, the ability because of their parents and their home conditions to really learn, um, he's concerned this will be a lost year in terms of education. So I do think in the next two weeks, um, we will likely reauthorize the PPP program. Um, there's $130 billion in it that hasn't been spent yet. I do think we may well extend the date for state and local governments to spend their CARES Act relief. And I'm hopeful that we will authorize more funding for states for the distribution of the vaccine. But beyond that, uh, another round of unemployment, another round of um, individual stimulus checks, um, I just don't think the majority leader and his caucus are going to do that. And um, it makes me want to cry or break things <laughs> to have to say that, but that's my current sense of where we are. Yeah, <clears throat> me too. It, um, it's maddening. Um, <clears throat> my daughter works for the D.C. public school system, and I got to tell you, it's this is insane what we're doing. Um, <clears throat> let's talk about the vaccine. Um, someone came up with the idea, <laughs> and which I think is not a bad idea of just paying people to take the vaccine. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like the best thing our can happen for our economy is for everyone to be vaccinated, <laughs> and the best thing for our health, and the best thing for so that people don't die is for everyone to be vaccinated. I don't think Senator Perdue should be paid to take his vaccine. That's where I draw the line. But essentially the argument is, you know, get in line, here's your vaccine, great, you're vaccinated, here's 50 bucks that you get when you come back for your second shot because we've got somewhere between 30 and 40% of Americans, um, given just how much President Trump has fueled conspiracy theories and undermined confidence in science that say they're not going to get vaccinated. And if it's a two-shot vaccination regime, which most of the promising vaccines are, you have to take the first one and then come back in two or three weeks to get the second one. Yeah, and I don't think it's 50. I think it's <laughs> 200 and then 200 for the next one. I mean, I, I don't know what the price point is, but we need to get everyone vaccinated. And this uh, this would pay for itself in terms of our, our uh, being able to open everything up. Let, let, let's move on to, one, uh, to something I'm really, and I know your, your time is short. I can't believe that my former Republican colleagues won't just say, come on, President Trump, you can't continue to question our democracy the way you are and spew these scurrilous theories. Why won't they say something? Why won't your Republican colleagues say something? Well, so I, it's been an interesting journey. Um, I've had quite a few conversations with colleagues who've called me to say, uh, hey, Chris, I'd really love it if you'd convey my congratulations to the president-elect. And I say, well, that's great. You know, thanks for calling. Um, sure. Um, but, you know, there's this thing called Twitter and you could simply post something congratulating him on on his uh, election. And I then get a, a silence uh, and I'll go on and look and I say, oh, well, you know, I, you haven't you haven't said anything about the election. This would be a great opportunity for you to, you know, move us in a good direction. And they backpedal and say, well, you know, my voters, uh, my yeah. constituents um, believe Trump. And so we're just going to have to let this play out. There are more Republican members of Congress who have tested positive for COVID than there are who have publicly accepted uh, that Joe Biden is the president-elect. Uh, before, <laughs> uh, before you say goodbye, uh, uh, I miss uh, working with you. And uh, it was fun on the Judiciary Committee. We sat next to each other. And um, 
Thank, thanks for doing this. Al, you are um, a tremendous friend and you are a great colleague. And I look forward to um, your voice and your influence and your engagement in our politics, because from the very first time um, I heard you bring your incredible insights uh, and intellect and wit um, to bear on critiquing uh, Rush Limbaugh and others uh, of our era, I thought, my gosh, he could really play a significant role in our politics. Um, you have, you are, and you will. And um, I've got a little sketch of the 50 states of the United States you did for me one day in judiciary, and um, it's literally sitting on my desk. And uh, I'm grateful for your friendship, and I appreciate this chance to be on with you. You know, you can frame those things, and I'll <laughs> sign it for you. That was Chris Coons, and uh, for now on, I'm, I'm, I'm going uh, with articulate guests who have something to say. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.